0: lesson today comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: This reading is taken from John chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him, and have seen him. The word of the Lord.
2: As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I would ask by the work of your Spirit that all that I do and say would be faithful to your word, edifying to your people, and glorifying to your Son, Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. As Orvin mentioned at the beginning, This year we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and this morning we're beginning a new series and a new section of the Gospel as we prepare to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. And John chapters 14 through 16 are all about the person, the work, the power of the Spirit, and it's absolutely vital that we receive and give freedom for the work of the Spirit in our midst, for in Him is our very life. So if you have your Bibles handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 14. Now this teaching of Jesus was intended to bring incredible comfort to his disciples. For as the story opens, we find that their hearts are deeply troubled. Why? Well, there's just been a disastrous turn of events. A few days before, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem, met with the adulation of a nation, proclaimed as king with shouts of hosanna and the waving of palm branches. And then they sit down to eat the Passover meal. And right in that moment, they're, they're, they're expectations are at a feverish pitch. He's going to do it. He's really going to do it. He's going to rid our nation of the Romans. He's going to seize the throne. And he's going to set up a time of peace, of prosperity for our nation. And then his opening words at dinner. I'm glad we are going to do this. Because this will be the last time. I'm leaving. Not just leaving. I'm going to my death. And then he looks at each one of them in turn and says, one of you here will betray me. He turns to Peter, one of his most trusted companions, known for his boldness and courage, and says, before the morning, you will have denied me three times. Their hearts are deeply troubled, expectations crushed, hoped, dashed, grief, sorrow, fear take hold. Jesus speaks these words to bring comfort to troubled hearts. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. We know something of troubled hearts, don't we? Eighteen months ago, we had some sort of sense of the trajectory of our lives, what we would do, where we would go, the people we would meet. And now that future is foggy at best. The pandemic has exposed the ugliness of racial and socioeconomic inequalities that are deeply rooted in the structures of our society. We're not the just society we thought we were that we congratulated ourselves for. There's a long road ahead. We walk down empty streets to see boarded up businesses, restaurants closing, each the evidence of a dream crushed, a family facing financial ruin. Just what is on the other side of this for them, for us. We weren't meant to live like this, distanced and apart. Loneliness deepening, relational angst building, mental health collapsing, addictions gripped, tightening, anger boiling over. There was hope on the horizon, But now the horizon just keeps shifting. A variant of concern there. Vaccine shortage here. Tightening restrictions everywhere. They, we, have troubled hearts. And Jesus speaks these words to troubled hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. You have troubled hearts, he says. Believe, trust. But believe, trust in what? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Oh, I know, I know what he's on about, we say. He's talking about heaven, he's talking about a better place, a future where we're taken away from everything that troubles hearts, a place of joy and love and goodness beyond imagining. Well, indeed, that might bring hope, but the disciples wouldn't have heard Jesus' words in that way. You see, the imagery, the language that Jesus uses here, comes of all places, right out of the marriage customs of his day. You see, in the first century, Jewish weddings were the fruit of arranged marriages. Each set of parents would seek to find the best match for their son, daughter. But the wedding could not be finalized until the fathers would meet to determine a bride price, number of cows, an amount of oil or wine, a parcel of land. But the engagement could not be sealed, until the groom came to the potential bride with a cup of wine and said, this is my life given for you. If she were to take a sip of that wine, she would be saying the same in return. I'm giving my life to you. Now, unlike modern weddings, where very soon after the engagement, a date is set, invitations are sent out, a marathon of activity ensues to get everything ready for the big day. In the first century, no one had any idea when the wedding celebration would be. There was often a long delay. Why? Well, the groom would have to go back to his father's house, saying to his future bride, I'm going to my father's house To prepare a place for you. And then returning home, he would begin to build an addition, a room, onto the family house where they would live after the wedding. And only when it was completed and the father's permission given could he return and the wedding celebrations begin. The bride then would have to be in a constant state of readiness. Her whole life would revolve around being ready, for she wouldn't know the time, the date, the hour of his return. The only warning she would get was the best man sent ahead to blow the shofar moments before the groom arrived. This imagery is all throughout the New Testament, shaping what it means to be a follower of Jesus, in particular how to live between his coming and his return. As Jesus says here to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to return and take you to myself. It's the verb for taking a bride. At the last supper, Jesus offers them a cup of wine. This is my life given for you. In Matthew 24, he says, no one knows the date, the time, the hour of my return, only my father. And commentators contort themselves to try and figure out why Jesus, God incarnate, doesn't know the time, the date, or the hour of his return. What he's doing there is he's rooting his return in this imagery of marriage. Carrying on in First Thessalonians 4, Jesus' return will be announced with the sound of a shofar. Revelation 19, his return inaugurating an eternal wedding feast. Now, please hear me. Jesus doesn't use this imagery to say, well, the first century wedding customs are the right way to think about and practice marriage. Not at all. But he's using something that they would readily understand to point them to a reality that is beyond imagining, a reality that as they trust, as they believe into it, will comfort their troubled hearts and in return our troubled hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, how would this marital imagery comfort troubled hearts? Can you imagine it for a moment? In the midst of the disciples' fear and sorrow and grief, Jesus says, Don't worry, guys, your future is getting married to me. Not sure my heart is feeling less troubled in that moment, perhaps actually a little more troubled or confused. But at times that's how that imagery gets worked out, gets interpreted that we the church are the bride of Christ and then that gets individualized, I'm the bride of Christ, giving birth amongst other things to the very best genre of contemporary Christian music. The Jesus is my boyfriend genre. I just can't bring myself to sing it. <laughs> now I know some take great comfort from seeing this imagery in that way. So don't get me wrong, There is absolutely a relational reality to this imagery, that our future is getting caught up in the eternal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I believe that Jesus is using this imagery here, yes, to point to a marriage, but a marriage of an entirely different sort. You see, one of the last places this imagery shows up is in the book of Revelation where John the Revelator pictures the new Jerusalem, the holy city, our final dwelling place, coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. A marriage, yes. But not a marriage so much as between us and Jesus, but a marriage of heaven and earth. What does that mean? Well, we pray for it every time we gather. Our Father... In heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We're in the Lord's prayer, praying for that marriage, that marriage of heaven and earth, a future where the fullness of God's kingdom comes, where our world is shot through with the justice, love, grace, peace, and flourishing of God alone. Jesus' own words point to this reality. He says, in my Father's house. And every other time in the gospel, he refers to the Father's house. It's to the temple. To the Jewish mind, the temple was the meeting place of heaven and earth. I'm going away to prepare that future, to add rooms on to the Father's house. I'm preparing my kingdom to come for you. As a staff team, we've been reading... And he writes books, Surprised by Hope. It's also the small group series that we're beginning this afternoon over Zoom with some 50 of you. And in the book, he reflects on this expansive hope that we have in light of the resurrection. He rightly points out that for most of us as followers of Jesus, our hope that is rooted in the resurrection is a hope for life after death, a hope of heaven. So life after death? Yes. Does that involve being in the presence of God and Jesus? Yes. But that is not the focus of the biblical writers. That's not the focus of Jesus. That is not the content of their hope. Their hope is not in life after death, but in life after life after death a bodily resurrection, the utter renewal of not only our individual physical reality, but the material renewal of the entire cosmos where heaven and earth meet, where heaven and earth are brought together in marriage when our world is shot through with the glory, beauty, love, justice, and peace of God. Let not your hearts be troubled, says Jesus. Believe this, Trust this. A hope that is not about escaping the realities that trouble hearts, but a hope that invites us to engage the realities that trouble hearts. For Jesus then adds, verse 4, You actually know the way to where I'm going. This is something that you can live into even now. To which Thomas responds, We do? We can I'm a little lost here. So Jesus seeks to bring some clarity. Verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now when we hear these words, we don't hear them the way the disciples would have heard them. We don't hear them as the words of encouragement that they are intended to be because we hear them in a very different context. You're driving down the highway you see a church sign. I think there's one very much like this on Highway 11. You've probably seen it going to Pioneer or the cottage. And a sign that very strongly suggests, if it all ended here on the highway, do you know where you're going? Heaven? Somewhere else? And as you're given that some thought, a couple kilometers further down, same color of sign put up by, I suspect, the same people, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because we hear the first part of his teaching wrongly, rooms in his Father's house, life after death, heaven, we interpret this second phrase as a decision point. Do you want that? You've got to make a decision for Jesus. Of course you've got to make a decision for Jesus, but the disciples have already made a decision for Jesus. He's speaking to them. Thomas says, we don't know the way to where you're going. We don't know how to get there. He says, of course you do, Thomas. It's me. I am the way. We live here in Corktown, near the distillery district, in a tourist part of town. Before the pandemic, there are lots of tourists in this neighborhood and I'd often get stopped and asked for directions to other tourist sites. The zoo... Well, walk west to Union Station, buy a ticket, make sure you get a transfer, go downstairs, get on the Young Line, go north to the Bloor Line, go east to Kennedy, get off at Kennedy, make sure you turn in your transfer, go upstairs, get on a bus, 86A, 86A will take you right to the zoo, last stop, good, got it, enjoy yourself. Now, chances are they're lost halfway through those directions, if not halfway there. But if I say to them, I'm going there, I'm the way there, just stay connected to me and we'll end up there together. Jesus is saying, I am the way to that home. I am the way to that future. I am the way to where heaven and earth meet. As I know God as Father, you can know God as Father. I am the way to turn your experience of exile into home, your experience of shame into forgiveness. Come with me. Stay connected to me by faith, by trust. I am the way, the truth. The disciples have seen in Jesus the truth of this future, the truth of the kingdom. They've seen the signs of what it looks like for heaven and earth to meet. The lame walk, the dead raised, the sick healed, the estranged welcomed, the sinner forgiven, the captive freed, the wrong justified. I am the truth of that coming reality. And in just a few verses, Jesus will also say, if you believe and trust in me, You will do the works that I do, and greater ones than these. What he's inviting from us is to say, if the marriage of heaven and earth means the oppressed are freed, the hungry fed, the naked clothed, living in anticipation of the truth of that kingdom means that we get engaged with addressing the injustices of our world. If the marriage of heaven and earth is about tears being washed away, wounds bound up, sorrows addressed, sin shadow cast no more, living in anticipation of the truth of where heaven and earth meet involves addressing sorrows, binding up wounds, casting off sin. Will any of these find their fulfillment before Jesus' return? No. The wedding feast does not begin before his arrival, but we can get ready. The table can be set. The musicians hired. The guests invited. The clothing prepared. I am the way. Stay connected to me by faith. I am the truth. Follow in my way. Do the works that I do. And more. I am the life. The temple The Father's house, as I mentioned earlier, for the Jewish mind, was the meeting place of heaven and earth. Because at various times, the life, the presence, the Shekinah glory of God descended upon the temple in a pillar of fire. Heaven and earth met. Not more than two months after these very words of Jesus those same disciples are gathered in the upper room and they hear the sound of rushing wind and small pillars, tongues of fire, descend on each one of them. These very followers become the living temple. Heaven and earth meet in them. They become the recipients of God's life, the bearers of God's presence, the signposts to God's future, the foretaste of that coming wedding feast. Let not your hearts be troubled. May we who have troubled hearts hear these words of comfort. Jesus promises a future where heaven and earth come together, a marriage where the earth is shot through with the glory, beauty, majesty, justice, peace of God. I am the way. By my death and resurrection, I have secured that future. Stay connected to me by faith, by trust, and I'll end your exile and bring you home. I am the truth. I pointed to the reality of where heaven and earth meet in all that I did and said, as my followers point to that reality in what you do and say, I am the life. Come to me. Receive my life, my spirit, the foretaste of that glorious future, the first installment, the promise of more to come. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, trust in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know we have troubled hearts. Locate us in hope. A hope that is not about escaping the realities that trouble our hearts, but a hope that invites our engagement with those very realities. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, it is your will to unite all things in Jesus, to unite heaven and earth in him, we eagerly await that glorious future. We long for that future to come. And indeed, that future has begun in his resurrection. And so orient us to that future by faith. Orient us to that future in all that we do and say. Orient us to that future as we receive your life, your spirit, that makes us bearers of your presence, signposts to your future, and foretastes of that coming feast. To the glory of Jesus alone, we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.